context, a passage that uh, we just read earlier on 1 Corinthians 11, which talks about head coverings for women, which talks about headship of men. Let's admit it, that can really be uncomfortable for us, perhaps even for you, quite offensive. Now, I want to admit this passage is hard. It's, it's probably the hardest passage in the whole of 1 Corinthians. It's certainly the hardest passage I've ever had to prepare a sermon on. And while I've put a lot of work into it this week, probably more work than I have in, on a normal uh, Sunday, uh, for a normal Sunday, and listened to other people preach on it, read more commentaries and passages on it, the chances are, even then, I may not be able to unknot all of the knots you have in your head and answer all your questions. What we're going to do, though, is um, after the response, we're going to have a Q&A. So if you do have questions, please jot it down. And uh, we're, I think we're a small enough group for you to be comfortable asking it. So um, feel free to ask at the end. But I do want to um, ask you to pray with me now as we uh, journey through this passage. And today you will especially, I think every week, have your Bibles open, okay? So have your Bibles open. Grab a black one at the back. If you want a paper Bible, just because it's easier to see the whole passage, stick your hand up and um, one of our ushers will get one for you. Um, today, there's also, as well as every week, an outline. It'd be helpful to follow the logic of what I'm saying this week. But let's pray and let's ask God for God's help. Join me in prayer. Father God, we pray, I pray, that your word, which comes to us as a good word from a loving Father, I might represent it truly and faithfully, so that through this passage, what we might see is indeed the word of a good and loving Father. Help me to be clear. Help us to overcome uh, any obstacles to meeting you, you in your word, and especially in this passage, seeing the Lord Jesus, even in the midst of some of these other things that are going on. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay. So let's go. I want to start with some key foundations. And the first one is that our view of the Bible, if you're a follower of Jesus, and especially if you come to Southwest, our view of the Bible is Jesus' view of the Bible. All right? And that is when Jesus looked at the, Word of, uh, looked at the Bible, and when he quoted, for him, the Bible was just the Old Testament, the New Testament hadn't been written, but it would be consistent to say that Jesus' view of the whole Bible, what is the whole Bible for us, is that it is the very Word of God. It is God's own word. And why God speaks to us and has it written down for us is because He loves us. That's a really important thing to start with. God loves us. He wants us to know Him. He wants what's best for us, and He created us and knows what's best for us. And that includes things that we find hard to understand, things that are difficult to accept. But if you think about it, if the God we worship never says anything that challenges us and maybe even makes us uncomfortable, then there's a good chance we're worshiping ourselves, right? See, 1 Corinthians 11, this passage, I'll be honest, it's, it'd be easier if we just kind of avoided it, accidentally missed out on it, moved it to that week between Christmas and New Year's when no one is here. Thought about doing that for a moment, that would have been easier. But you know what? At Southwest, we believe, as Jesus does, that every word, every part of the Bible is God's good word to us. So we work through the Bible. 1 Corinthians, we started actually last year in chapter 1, and we're going to work through to the end of 1 Corinthians, and we don't want to skip verses 2 to 16 of chapter 11 just because it's difficult. Right? That's our understanding that every word is the word of God. But the other thing to remember is that God's good word comes to flawed human beings. You see, we're going to find that God's word is hard, because we're human, all right? We are human, and that's what, 
on the one hand, we're flawed because we're limited in our understanding, we're finite in our knowledge. And when I find a part of Scripture that's hard to understand, I always remind myself the problem isn't with God, the problem's with me. I, I, I'm limited. I find lots of stuff hard to understand. There are those of you who work in professions, you'll just talk about really basic stuff I'll find hard to understand. But that goes for me and you. And, you know, we're all limited. No one knows everything. And as I said, there's lots on this passage, probably more than any other part of 1 Corinthians. There's been papers written on it, journals written on it, commentaries, books written on it. A lot of smarter people than me have tried to work it out, and yet we are still limited. Now, I'm not saying that nothing is certain. Don't hear me say that. I hope you see, by the end of it, there is a central message I think is clear, is certain. But with this passage especially, there's going to be a lot of other things. I am genuinely less certain about, and I'll let you know that. And I'll often say, yeah, I'm just not too sure about that. There'll even be one point I'll be like, take your pick of the options. And that's okay, because we're limited. But you know what? More than just being flawed in our understanding, our flaw is that we are living in a world that is affected by sin. And when we come to a passage like this, you know, there's a real possibility. In fact, it's not a real possibility. It's real, because I know some of the stuff that's gone on in your lives, in the families that you've come from, in the relationships that you've been, that some of these words are going to really bring up pain in your life because you've been sinned against. Yeah? I mean, passages like this get misapplied, get misused by churches, and Christians, and particularly to justify men abusing women. And if that's you, first thing I want to say, we, we want to grieve and mourn with you. Because it's painful and it should never have happened. And we want to walk with you at our church. It just goes with any victim of abuse. We want to listen to you. We want to hear your story. And, and we will confidentially offer you the opportunity to talk to us or talk to a professional, or even talk to the police, if that's something that you're currently going through, because you need to know that abuse of any kind is unacceptable. It goes right against God and right against His Word. You see, God is not abusive, all right? He is a loving Father who gives us His good Word, and His good Word, when you read and apply it correctly, should never, ever give rise to abuse. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. But I understand that some people might be feeling pain because of stuff that this kind of passage brings up. And I just want to say that, yeah, that, that might happen. And if you do want to talk privately, please come and talk to myself or Karen further. The third thing to remember as a key foundation is that God's unchanging word comes to changing cultures. And that's not something we're embarrassed about. That's actually one of the best things about the Christian faith. You see, the Bible is not like the Quran or the Book of Mormon, both holy texts. I'm not putting them down, but they're very different in how they're made up or how, how, how they've come about is probably a better word. Uh, the Bible, unlike the Quran for Muslims or the Book of Mormon for Mormons, was not dropped out of the sky or dictated to just one person so that cu culture and context and human authors don't really matter in the end, that the authors are sort of just a, a vessel. That's not the way the Bible's come about. We've got 66 books written over 1,500 years by over 40 authors in three different languages in three different continents. And if you were fresh last week, you would have found that out. 
But it's to real people in real time. It's still the Word of God, but He uses real human authors in real time, in real people. 1 Corinthians, as we've seen throughout, is a real letter. Right, preserved for us, but a real letter written something in the 50s AD, 20 years or so after Jesus came, died, and rose again, in, uh, to a place in Corinth, really existed, we have archaeological evidence of ancient Corinth, by a real man called Paul. We have historical evidence that he existed. I mean, this is real. And so God's word is unchanging, but it comes to us clothed in and to changing cultures and times. So we will see in this chapter both the unchanging part and the changing part, all right? The unchanging word that transcends all cultures, that is all people everywhere it applies to. But there's going to be parts and ways it works out that are culture-bound, that we will today need to adapt across different cultures because they're in a different culture to us and different circumstance to us. Okay, that's an important distinction between the unchanging and the changing. Now, of course, the next question is, well, how do you know? Uh, can't we all you know, cherry pick which bits are changing and unchanging. If we don't like it, we'll say it's changing, and if we like it, we'll say it's unchanging. Well, that's not quite like that, because you do have to pay attention to uh, how, the, how the passage is written. So in 1 Corinthians 11, here's a clue. When there is an appeal to the Old Testament Scripture, and especially to the creation order of how God set it up in the first place, the blueprint of creation, and especially when it's before the fall, before sin entered the world, that's a hint that it's supposed to be transcultural across cultures. Right? Because creation, Genesis 1 and 2, is located way before there were races and nations and cultures. Do you see right? Different cultures, I mean. And so that's a good clue that those parts are going to be across cultures, true of all cultures. Now, when there's an appeal to customs, when there's appeal to social situations that are very specific to the time or place, that may be a clue that those things need to be adapted to a different culture. Do you see what I mean? You've you got to look for the line of reasoning. And we'll, we'll see both of that in 1 Corinthians. Okay, so that's my way of background. I'm up to point number two on your outlines. Let's have a look firstly at the unchanging truths of 1 Corinthians 11. Quick context, if you haven't been with us in 1 Corinthians, um, the Apostle Paul, who founded the church in Corinth, and is writing to them, is dealing with some very specific issues that the Corinthians have raised. So chapter 7 starts with the issue of marriage and singleness, and chapter 8 with food, sacrifice to idols. Um, it's part of a larger section, actually from chapter 8, that will go all the way to chapter 14, that while it's different topics, it really all touches on the issue of worship. All right? How do we interact with God? How do we engage with God? Starting with food, sacrifice to idols, um, here is another aspect of worship, and it will go on um, about other issues. Next week, we'll look at the Lord's Supper and so on, okay? So this is uh, a section dealing with worship. And let's go to the passage. Have a look again at verse 2. This is how he opens. He starts with praise. He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding on to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Now, I want you to know that verse 3 is really the one, the verse that everything hangs on. Okay, you get verse 3, and then everything sort of just follows. And verse 3 is the verse that I think we need to spend a bit more time on, because that's the one I want to say is unchanging. It's transcultural. It goes 
beyond just cultural changes. And so there's a few points for you on our A, B, and C. And so the first thing to note is that verse 3 highlights that everyone has a head. Now, some people think that the word head is a mistranslation, that it should be translated as source. So the head of a river is the sort of the source of the river. And some people say it should be source rather than head. It has nothing to do with hierarchy. It has to do with source. Now, that's kind of come up in the last few decades. Unfortunately, the scholarship behind that in the last 30 years or so has shown to be kind of flimsy when you compare the use of the word across all Greek literature. The source is just not, it's right, very unlikely that it actually is, it means source. It actually means head. But even if, if we think head, well, that can mean various things, right? What does head mean? In that the head of a nation is slightly different or quite substantially different to head prefect of a school, Yeah? Now, even though they're different, I think the idea of head, while there's different ways we can use it, at least implies, I think, some sort of leadership. Like, I think lowest common denominator, head, implies leadership. And leadership, while there might be different, you know, degrees of authority, head of a nation versus head prefect, there's still some authority attached to it. So leadership attached to authority, I think we can, at least in a fuzzy way, say that's a minimum. But Paul's point here, you see, is that everyone has a head. Everyone has a head. Now, he, you, know, you see, the way that he's put it, he's not trying to set up a hierarchy of relationships all the way from God the Father to us. Um, if he had wanted to make that the emphasis, he would have worded it something like that. Look at the overhead. He would have said something like, God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman. Right? He could have easily done that, because that's what it really boils down to, logically. But he doesn't put it like that, does he? Because he doesn't, his point isn't trying to highlight the hierarchy. What is he trying to do? Well, instead he words it like that, as you see in verse 3. Right? The head of the man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. The head of Christ is God. What is he trying to highlight? Is the fact that every single one of the people mentioned here has a head except for God. Right? The man has a head. The woman has a head. And even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has a head. And that's the way that he's put it and worded it, because he's trying to highlight that first point I'm trying to make. Everyone has a head. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that the head of the woman is man? Because in a sense, I think you probably don't have real issues with saying that, understanding that um, the head of the man is Christ. You know, if you're a follower of Jesus, yeah, great. The head of Christ is God. Yeah, he's the Son of God. God is the Father. So the real clincher is, what, what does it mean that the head of the woman is man? I think it's helpful for us to maybe start with what Paul does not mean. Okay, let's start with that. What does Paul not mean by that? I want to say that he does not mean that the head of women in general is men in general. Or, put another way, that the head of every single woman is every single man. Do you kind of get what I mean? Because if, if you said that, then that would mean simply by virtue of being female, no matter what context you're in, whether in the family or the church or the workplace, that therefore the men, by virtue of being male, have to be the head. So if you're in a family and you have a younger brother because you're female, your younger brother is the head of you. And if you're a woman employee, then you should never become a manager or CEO. And a nation should never have a female PM, 
and we shouldn't have Queen Elizabeth, we should have King Philip. And do you, you see what I mean? And that's not what Paul means here. He's not saying the head of men in, women in general are men, or the head of every woman is every man. Here he's primarily talking about the marriage relationship. That's really important to remember. The marriage relationship, and how we know is because the word woman is the word wife. In the original Greek, same word. The word man, you guessed it, is the word husband. Same word in the original Greek. So it could be translated instead of woman, man, wife, husband. And when those two words are paired in the New Testament, it's almost always talking about the wife and the husband. And especially when it's paired together to talk about these different roles. So Ephesians 5, you will know, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with it, about marriage. And Colossians 3, it is clearly there talking about husband and wife. Same words used, by the way, right? Same words translated man and woman. So I think he's primarily having in mind here the relationship between wives to husbands. The head of a wife is her husband. Not women in general, men in general. And also more importantly, what he doesn't mean, second thing he doesn't mean, and this is very, very important, is that this headship means inequality and is somehow open to or can be an excuse for abuse. That is really important. We don't see that. And I'll show you why, and I'm up to point 2B. Because this is all structured. You see the way that he's logically structured, and not to highlight hierarchy, the way he's worded it is to, to really highlight one key thing, and that is that for both the wives in their role and husbands in their role, Jesus is their reference point. Jesus is the reference point for both the wife and woman, for the husband and the man. You see, how is the husband supposed to be head of his wife? It's as Christ is head of the man, first line. Yeah? How is a wife to be headed up by her husband? Third line, because Christ, Jesus is headed by God the Father, yeah? Now, why is that important? It means that you cannot say that the head has greater worth or value or is greater in any intrinsic way than the person they're head of. Because we know that Jesus, God the Son, is equal with God the Father in terms of divinity and worth and majesty, yeah? He's, no, he's not a lesser God. That would be the Mormon position or the Jehovah's Witness position. He's not a, a secondary God. He is fully God, God the Son. That's what we believe about the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equally God, three persons in one. So whatever we do mean by headship, it does not mean inequality in essence. Do you see? And so the question then is, how does Jesus model, how is Jesus that reference point model both headship and honoring of headship, because he does both. Well, I want to show you Philippians chapter 2, because this is an important passage. Look at that. <clears throat> In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Okay, so husbands, you are to be head like Jesus. 
is head. Jesus, who is head over, well, in other places like Colossians, he's actually head over all creation. Everything was made by him and through him. He threw the stars into space. He sustains the galaxies. He is the head. And he's especially head over his people. But what does he do for his people? How does he lead them? How does he exercise authority over them? He becomes a servant. The word is slave, literally. He gives up his rights. And he serves them. He washes their feet. He dies for you, even though he is your head. That's headship. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, not yet a Christian, I want you not to miss this because there'll be other things in this passage you'll be like, oh, I'm not really sure about that. Oh, I might even find that a little offensive. Right? And that's something we'll talk through and so on. But don't miss this core bit because everything kind of, this is the most important part. What Jesus has done for you. And I don't want you to miss that. That though he is fully God and he created you, but because he loves you, he wants to serve you. Your God the majestic God of the universe came and died for you. And if you trust in Him, you can today receive forgiveness and eternal life. So don't miss that if you're not yet a follower of Jesus. Because it's a wonderful, wonderful thing of what your God has come to do for you, for me. Now, if you are a Christian, especially if you are a Christian husband... How could you possibly conclude that headship is anything like domineering, authoritarian, threatening, strong-arming, violent, angry, anything close to abuse? You can't, can you? Because that model of Jesus in Philippians 2 is the complete opposite of abuse, is it not? Yeah, it's the complete opposite. Now, can we show that in Philippians 2 passage again? Now, wives, what does it mean to have husbands as your head? Again, Jesus is your reference point, and Philippians 2 also highlights that, doesn't it? Because Jesus is in very nature God. He is fully equal with God in divinity and glory and honor and power, and yet He willingly honors and obeys his head, God the Father. And he goes to the cross. In other parts of the Bible, it says that Jesus went to the cross obediently and with joy. But don't mistake that to think that you know, it was easy for him because we know that the night before Jesus was betrayed, he agonized, didn't he? He pleaded with God the Father. He actually said, I don't want to do this. If there's, if there's any possibility that this... Can, can, I, I can skip the cross, then please, God, please, Father, let it pass from me. And then he ends with, though, yet not my will, but your will be done. So you see what's going on there. Jesus, whose head is God the Father, he makes his case. He says, Father, I don't want to do this. And yet, still, in the end, willingly and joyfully entrusts himself to his head out of love for his head. Now, this still may be uncomfortable for some, even though we've said Jesus is a reference point, whether you are the head or you are headed by someone. Jesus is both the model of headship as well as the model of following and honoring someone's headship. But it still may be uncomfortable for you. But I want to say that, and please do raise it up at question time, but this is not the only passage that teaches that with regards to husband-wife relationships, okay? I mean, 
it's actually throughout the New Testament that there is a husband headship in the marriage and the home, but, 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 but need to know that this is a headship deeply modeled on Jesus and how he treats his people. I want to um, bring it to us for a moment before we move on, because again, this is the really important verse. And I think there's a challenge to both husbands and wives in different ways. Now, if you're here and you're not married or um, you're not currently married, um, uh, you kind of want to hear what's, what, what's been said because it's still in the Scriptures. But there'll be some of you who are not married who will maybe one day be married. And so this is something to think about. But if you're not married, um, what I'll end up saying right in the sermon is, actually, I think this application broader. Any, any person who is ahead in any sort of way, in any sort of leadership position, there's things that will be said here that really apply to you. Anyone who is um, headed by someone, right, who has a head, there'll be things that apply to you. So, you, you know, you want to go broader than just husbands and wives. But I'm just going to talk to husbands and wives for a moment. And those of you who are not husbands and wives yet, or maybe won't be, um, just have a listen and see where it might apply to you. But firstly, to husbands or those who want to be. I think husbands can fail to be Christ-like in their headship with two opposite but equally sinful ways. And they both start with A, and it's number one, abuse, and number two, abdication. Sorry, abdication is a big word, but it starts with A. All right? See, I think husbands can abuse headship, obviously, that's one of the ways in which is deeply, deeply wrong. By being domineering, by being controlling, by being inconsiderate, um, by being selfish, belittling, angry, manipulative, violent. And there's lots of ways in which domestic and family abuse is not just what you do with your fists, although that's terrible. There's other ways that people can be abused. And that is an overstepping of your headship completely against the gospel, against what God wants you to do. That's abusing, and that's sinful, and that's wrong. And if that's you, you need to repent. To talk to someone about it, you need to confess your sins, and you need to get help, and you need to repent. But there's another way in which men who are husbands, and it's equally wrong, although the consequences might not quite be as serious, but it's to be abdicating your headship. Abdicate is just to kind of you know, give it away, not take responsibility. And that is, men, husbands can be over-passive. They never take the initiative to love and care and protect and provide for. Or they just see their little domain as, as long as I keep food on the table and money in the bank account, that's it. Everything else is up to my wife. And especially you Christian husbands or want to be Christian husbands. I see it so often in the context of church and children's ministry and youth ministry. The only one who actually cares about the growth of the children is the wife, the mother, even though the husband's a Christian. Take no responsibility for helping your children follow and love Jesus, leading the family and your wife to grow in their love for Christ. And this is a real serious issue. I think if you've heard of Jordan Peterson, the YouTube sensation, Canadian philosopher, I don't even know what he is, like academic. Anyway, why does he get so much traction? It's because we are a generation of man babies aren't we? And it's tragic because the man baby who never grows up and never takes responsibility is abdicating their responsibilities. And in marriage and in family life and in church life, that's just as much of a tragedy. So if that's you, or you see yourself in that direction, whether you're married or want to be married, men need to repent 
need to get help. Talk, talk about how you might change, how God might change you. All right, how about wives or those wanting to be? Well, wives can fail to be Christ-like in their role with two opposite but equally sinful ways as well. Active or passive. That is, you could be actively undermining your head, your husband's, by being domineering, controlling, inconsiderate, selfish, manipulative, violent. Looks a lot like the abusive headship. It does. Funnily enough, actually not funnily enough, it makes sense, doesn't it? But you can also passively undermine, and this is probably more likely to happen, with your words especially, nagging, undercutting, putting down, disrespecting, belittling him to him and to others about him, over-criticizing. He never feels like you trust him, never feels like he could ever succeed because you expect him to fail, and so he does fail. I mean, do you see what I mean? That's passive undermining. And so wives, women, if that's you, actively or passively undermining your heads, then you're not acting in a Christ-like way either, are you? And you need to repent, and you need to talk to each other, and you need to get help, and you need to change. So you got that? Here's the transcultural stuff. Everyone has a head. Everyone's reference point is Jesus. And then thirdly, honor your head in public worship. That's really what 1 Corinthians 11 is on about. Everyone has a head, and you need to express that honor in the way that you behave in church. Now here we will move from to the transcultural to the cultural, the unchanging to the changing. Because we see here that wives can dishonor or honor their heads, that is their husbands, in the church by what they wear or don't wear. At least that's what it was for Corinth. And husbands, similarly, can dishonor or honor their heads, that is Christ, also by what they wear or don't wear. So, let me move to point number three, and we're going to deal with what are the cultural and contextual applications that Paul draws from the unchanging stuff to Corinth. So, look at verse four. Verse four. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same thing as having her head shaved. For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now, firstly, a note, praying or prophesying. We know what praying is, what is prophesying. Don't have time to unpack that here. That's actually going to turn up in chapter 14 and 12 as well. And we're going to get to that in 1 Corinthians next year. Sorry, have to wait. Come back for that. But... Um, cut a long story short, I think in context, praying, prophesying here is not just praying privately, um, coupled with prophesying. It's something that you do in the public assembly. It's, if you like, the upfront public ministry. So the kind of thing that Jess is doing today or our song leaders do or I'm doing, okay? Or if you lead in prayer or you read the Bible up front, that's the sort of thing that I think is, he's talking about, praying and prophesying. It's a public ministry role in the context of the gathering. Now, I want you to know here... Whatever he means by praying and prophesying, you do, do know the assumption is that both men and women can do it. Yeah, you got that? That's really important. They equally get access to do this kind of upfront public ministry. That's why I think it's really great that we have male service leaders and female service leaders, male prayers and female prayers, equal access to those kind of ministries. Wonderful. But he's saying when exercising this upfront role in the church gathering, if wives have their hair, head uncovered, that somehow that dishonors the husbands. 
But, funnily enough, if the husbands have their head covered, that dishonors Jesus, their head. So that's the kind of, uh, what's going on here? So what do we know of head coverings in the ancient world that they were a part of? Well, we know that in Roman society, like many parts of Arabic world and Middle Eastern world today, that women, especially wives, covered their hair, heads in public. So we're not looking at full face coverings like the burqa, we're looking at the scarf or the shawl, right, like the hijab. So I've got a picture of our lovely queen, Elizabeth, with a scarf over her head, something like that, all right? Now, there's a lot of talk about how head coverings are just sexist and oppressive, and do you know what? The vast majority of Muslim women or Arabic women you talk to, they would be absolutely appalled that we make these assumptions. Because for them, as it was in Roman society, it's actually a, a sign of honor. It actually is something honorable, something they want to do. Because it symbolizes for them, as well as Roman society, if you're a woman, right, that you're pure before marriage, and if you are a wife, that you are faithful within marriage. That's kind of what the symbolism of the, the shawl means, and it's something that they want to do. But you see, there's ancient historical evidence that there was a movement of new Roman wives who were of the upper class who actually began to rebel against this convention a few decades before this was written. These upper class women began to want to sleep around like their husbands did. Okay, so it's very unequal society. Their husbands shouldn't have been doing it, but now they wanted to, rather than help their husbands be better, they wanted to be just as bad. So they flaunted their sexual freedom, had a lot of younger men, slept with a lot of them, and they just wanted everyone to know. And they made this statement by often the way they dressed, particularly the way they styled their hair. We actually have, um, uh, you know, sculptures of that kind of stuff. And one of the things they did was they decided that Head coverings, that kind of stuff was something that they especially didn't want to have in public. Now, we're not 100% certain, but this kind of movement of new Roman wives may be the background behind 1 Corinthians 11. And, and so for someone to decide, I will not cover my head in public worship, was a deliberate signal of sexual freedom, of promiscuity, something that actually therefore would dishonor their husbands. I mean, can you imagine Right? If your wife came and she especially wanted to flaunt the fact that she slept with a lot of younger men, I mean, that would dishonor you. Or it would dishonor your future husbands if you're unmarried. Now, interestingly, of course, the, um, the punishment for that kind of behavior in the ancient world, especially adultery, sleeping around, was to have your head shaved as a public humiliation. Now, that was not always enforced on the upper-class women. They got away with a lot because they're upper-class women. But when it was enforced, one of the ways in which you could be publicly humiliated is to have your hair cut off or your head shaved, which kind of makes sense of Paul's point, right? He's kind of saying, if you want to cast off the honor of wearing head coverings, well, why not go the whole way and embrace the dishonor of having your hair shaved off? Right? If you want to flaunt the fact that you've slipped around, well, that's, you might as well go the whole way. That's kind of what he's saying. Now, that's for women and their head coverings. What about husbands? Why is the opposite true? Why is covering their head a dishonor to Christ, his head. Now here, we are in much less certain territory. See, likely, Paul is actually making a contrasting rhetorical point. There may not have been any cases of men wanting to cover their heads, but, you know, he's making it a contrasting point because I think this passage is primarily doing, dealing with the wives and what they did and didn't do. We do know it was not conventional for men to cover their heads in public 
or in public worship. However, interestingly, there is some historical evidence of men of prominence, like Roman emperors, and I don't know if this is a Roman emperor, but could be, I can't remember, but men of prominence who would pull their togas over their head when they went to the pagan temple to lead prayer or offerings, and the point of them doing that is to actually big note themselves, to highlight their prestige and position, because by doing that, they looked pious and godly, and it actually made them look better. Now, if that was in the background, we, again, we have like sculptures that showed that. If that's in the background, then perhaps men in the Corinthian church were tempted to do that by copying the emperor, pulling the toga over the head during public worship to big note themselves. Look at me. Look how awesome I am. Look how godly I am. But when you do that, you see, you would be dishonoring your head, who is Jesus, because you're big noting yourself rather than humbling yourself before him. That may be the case. Simply don't know, okay? But the point is, in Corinth, how they honored their head was, in their culture, was tied to what you did or did not do with head coverings. That much we know. As we'll see in a moment, this is the culturally specific part. Now, before we apply it to us and think, well, how does it change in our culture? I'm going to, right now, take my foot off the brakes and go really, really quickly through the rest of the passage. If you, don't, if you want to take a snooze, take a snooze here. We're going to go 100 miles an hour, just so you know where the rest of the passage is going. So here we go. Paul will give, for the rest of the passage, two arguments or reasons for what he's saying in verses 7 to 11. Creation is the reason. Verses 13 to 16, convention is the reason. So firstly, his argument from creation, verse 7 to 11. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man didn't come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Okay, here is where I want to say why verse 3, that key verse, is transcultural, because here is an argument that picks up ideas of headship from verse 3, and you see his appeal is to creation in Genesis 1 and 2, particularly the opening chapters of the Bible's creation account, which again applies to all humanity. It's a blueprint. It's pre-fall. Having said that, though, there are a few tricky bits here, so let me go through three particular puzzles, especially if you did this during CG. Number one, is Paul saying that women are not or are less than men as image bearers? Is that what he's saying in verse 7? The answer is no, because... Clearly, in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, God made humanity in his image. Male and female, he created them. Both male and female equally in the image of God. What I think here he's emphasizing is the order of creation that we get in Genesis 2, in that Adam was formed first, and then Eve, his wife, second. Doesn't make them unequal, but there is an order in creation. Adam created by God as the first human, Eve created by God out of Adam as a complement to him. I don't think he's missing out on the women being the image of God because women's not the image of God. I think he's just wanting to reflect the order of Genesis 2. Ask about it later if you want to. Got more there, but let me go on to the second puzzle. Does, does verse 9, women created for man, isn't that just horribly open to abuse? Woman created for man, she gets to be used by him no matter what. Well, part of the issue there is, it's just, I don't think it's the best translation. Our English Bible is mostly 99% really good. 
This is the 1% where I think it would be more helpful for them to translate the for as because of. Any first-year Greek student will tell you this. Neither was man created because of woman, but woman because of man. Much better translation and accurate too. What's that saying? It's not that women are to be used for men. It's that Genesis 2, God made Eve after making Adam because of Adam's need. Right? For a helper and to complete humanity. That's what it means. Third, angels in verse 10. What the heck's going on there? All right. Here, I'm not really sure at all. Let me give you two, two possibilities. Number one, angelic beings, angels in heaven, are witnesses in heaven to what's going on on earth in our worship. So we honor God and his heavenly company as they witness us by doing the right thing in public worship. One option. Other option, we're not talking about angelic beings at all. We're talking about human messengers. The word angel, same word for messenger. All right. So what happens in the Corinthian church can bring public dishonor when and if human messengers or representatives from other churches or even the secular authorities come to observe. Take your pick, angelic beings, human messengers, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, I choose one, Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, I choose another, on Sundays, I'll give you both. Okay. Argument from creation, that's the first one. Next few, last few verses, arguments from convention. See there, verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory, for long hair is given to her as a head covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, this is why I want to say the issue of head coverings, what you do with the head coverings, is for the Corinthians a cultural, contextual thing that we do need to take into account as contextual, as cultural, different. Last night I was at the Rice Rally. One of the Rice leaders, um, his name's James Lee. He's like the coolest Asian guy I know. He has like a man bun. So he has long hair, but he ties it up in a man bun. He's just so cool. I want to be like him. All right? In our culture, just because you have long hair as a man doesn't mean you're less of a man. If you have a short haircut as a woman, doesn't, you know what I mean? It's, this is a cultural thing. And what he's doing is he's obviously appealing to everything that they understood and he understood. There's common cultural conventions about hair length which is just very different in our culture. What's natural to them is expressed differently to us. Roman men wore their hair short. Roman women wore their hair long. It's not the same today, and neither was it the same outside of Rome. In ancient China, as, long, well, as far as the Kung Fu um, movies depict, men had long hair. I will assume the Kung Fu movies are right. Right? Okay. Let me come to the last point. What does it mean for us? So, summary... What is the transcultural? Again, this is the important part. This, the primary transcultural thing is my point two, right? Everyone has a head. I think this is what 1 Corinthians is getting at. Our reference point is Jesus, and we're to honor our heads in public worship. That is transcultural. That's the primary one. There's a secondary one. It's sort of assumed. And in other contexts, I probably don't even need to say it, but in this day and age, I do need to say it. It's assumed that there is a real difference between men and women, right? It's assumed. And that difference ought to be culturally reflected in culturally appropriate ways. Right? That's assumed. Now, of course, that needs to be said because we do have in our day and age a lot of push on non-binary gender theory. Um, now, I want to say it's not the time to go through it. You can ask it in question time. But um, I think the problem with the non-binary gender stuff, apart from, you know, I know um, the LGBTI community can be 
you know, really feeling abused and that's wrong and all that, all the kind of ostracization. But I don't think the solution is non-binary gender because the problem is non-binary gender theory comes because the arts faculties have taken over the science faculties. All right? Like, you actually need to know that there is no scientific basis for non-binary. Like, you talk to neuroscientists in particular and they will say there is a binary. Right? Even from in utero, there is a binary. So... I loved the arts faculty, I studied arts, but there's a tragedy when arts faculties take over. Anyway, you can ask about that later. Non-binary gender theory is not supported by the evidence, scientific evidence. So the assumption that there is a real difference between men and women reflected in culturally appropriate ways, that's an important thing to put out there. But that's secondary. Now, how does this apply to us in our culture? Here, I'm going to slow down a little bit because this is important. I don't believe it's about what we wear. I don't believe it's, I'm, gonna, I'm not, not going to apply it that way. Now, many sermons will apply it that way. Most sermons I hear about this passage, I've heard a, a number, will say that the main application is about maintaining male and female distinctions in dress that's culturally, culturally appropriate for us in public worship. Now, I don't disagree that that is a good thing. Right? I'm not saying that um, next week men come, you know, everyone cross-dressed. No, I'm not saying that. But I think that's taking the secondary transcultural truth and ignoring the primary. The primary is about how do you express your honor for your respective heads in public worship. For the Corinthians, it has to do with head coverings. It had to do with what they wear. I just don't see that for us it's going to be primarily at all dress-related. That's just not one of our cultural codes, is it, for honoring our heads? I think for us, it's much more about our words and actions. It's our words and actions, especially if you have an opportunity in the public assembly to lead or speak up front. Honor your head. That's not going to be what you wear. And I think here's where it's helpful to widen our application. I mean, firstly, husbands and wives, but I think widen our application. Because in church, there are lots of relationships based on headship in the Christ-like way and giving due honor to headship, right? I mean, yes, wives to husbands, but also children to parents. Also, younger to older. Also, members to leaders. And headship is played out in lots of different contexts. And so the question really should be, how can we, in our words and actions, especially from up front, bring honor and not dishonor to those who happen to be our heads? And it's important to remember, of course, even if you are head, you still have a head. That is, husbands also have a head. Christ is your head. But you know what? In church, the majority of the husbands here, you have your pastors as your head and your church elders and your leaders as your head too. Do you anything about how you honor them? But even pastors and elders, we have heads, don't we? Because it's ultimately Jesus. And so I could bring dishonor to my head by making you think that this church is all about me. That's bringing dishonor to Jesus, my head. That's not going to be what I wear, well, mostly. It's going to be what I say. It's going to be how I exercise my head. Do you see what I mean? So the question is, how do we honor our respective heads? Yes, wives, husbands, but all these other relationships and headships that go on in the context of church. I'm not going to have time to apply that. But that's the direction I think we should be going. 
Um, we're going to sing. We're going to have question time. So why don't you um, think about what questions you'd like to ask.